0: Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here again with Gaia Harrington. Gaia, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. And I've been waiting for this conversation since before our last one ended because we ended the conversation, and I'm sure for us this was a month ago, but for the listeners, they might have just listened to the last episode. And we talked about drastic improvement as opposed to just drastic change. And... It felt, I think a lot of people think all the changes that are ahead of us are like, oh no, we have to do all these terrible things. But you and I agree, I think, that it's drastic improvement. And also, I understand that you've been picking up litter with your daughter. I haven't talked to you since then. And if that's the case, I want to point out that you are a, you're like a, a corporate, I think of KPMG as like a conservative place, like a business place. Not a place where people pick up litter, but I think for you, it's, I I like the idea of people that the average person would think, oh, they wouldn't do that. And I wonder how it's gone. I want to talk about the litter first, if that's okay with you.
1: Oh, yes. Okay. It's actually in a way related, these both points, even though they seem so far apart, because if we, this transformational change that we need, these big improvements, We need everyone on board for that. Everybody needs to play their role. And we cannot do it without business, whether you like that or not. So I think given the enormous challenges we have, uh, we need systems change. So the thing with systems change is you cannot change a system from, from outside. So you can be disgusted by what you see in the world, and that's very understandable. There's a lot of destruction and a lot of unnecessary suffering. But the thing is, uh, if you don't want to get your hands dirty on that, trying to make things better from the inside, you won't have much effect. And I think we are, based on my research, I would say we are out of time for not being more pragmatic.
0: Now, what you're saying sounds to me like what I say is systemic change begins with personal change, but what most of the world identifies, they don't get this. And I don't think I did either, but it's been so long now that I have recognized that you have to get your hands dirty to, in order to change that I, I almost can't remember the feeling that most people have. I think there's a mainstream, I was just emailing with someone who was sending me articles about Individual action won't add up. We need the governments and corporations to to make the difference. And don't be distracted. BP wants you to look at your own personal thing, but that's really meaningless. And to me, how do you view that? And did you also change?
1: That is true. It's true that just by recycling, we will not avoid, in my opinion, what's going to be ecosystem collapse uh so that is accurate but here's the thing if you're working in the system there's a tension that comes with that so there's a real emotional maturity you need to have there uh because you have to be inside the system to change it but there is the other side that you cannot change the system if you are completely engulfed uh with its current narrative so that's a tension there you are in it but you want to change it at the same time and i think That's the tension that some people are talking about. And I think that's where you have to also stay close to what your personal values are. And so I think that's why these personal small things do matter, because you want to be in alignment with what your values are and what you're trying to do. But I do agree that it should not end there with just your personal impact. You want to see how you can change the system. And that can go... In all kinds of ways, ideally, you would be working in leverage points, so parts of the system that have a disproportionate impact on the rest of the system. And you will have to find where those are and where you can really, where you have the influence, right, to work in those points. And I think that's why it's so important to do this, keep doing these small things and not just focus on the big picture. At the same time, you do have to keep your eye, in that sense, on the ball.
0: Did you always know this tension that you had to be in the system? You had to live by your values. Did you always know that or did you have to learn that also?
1: Yes, I definitely had to learn that.
0: Do you remember how you learned it?
1: Trial and error. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you're younger and and you do notice there's a little bit of a tension, mostly subconsciously, a tension relief when you just go into the system, a systems narrative. But because the narrative suits us so badly (laughs) it's it does it just doesn't feel right and i think so what's the current system right what's the narrative there and i think the obviously the goal is perpetual growth and so the narrative is that we're all just temporarily embarrassed millionaires and ultimately the pursuit of growth will deliver uh, at least material wealth for everybody and then of course the implication there is that material wealth will also make us happy and those narratives are starting to break down. I think more and more people realize, first of all, it's not happening. I think it's a very, so the world's a big place. It's a very different story for developing countries. When you're resource constrained, growth of resources will make you happier. There's no doubt about that. So I'm not talking about that. But if we're talking about New York City, in the US, uh, developed economies, mostly what the pursuit of growth mostly has done over the past few decades is just spur income inequality. The poor have not gotten less poor, quite the opposite. Even the middle class mostly has been eroded. So a lot of people, even in the middle class, are worse off than they would have been if we hadn't seen this massive transfer of wealth to the top. And there you can legitimately ask, did this growth? pursued really deliver for us. And I think it's, it's fairly easy to establish that it hasn't for the majority. And I think that's the kind of narrative that is therefore breaking down. And we're seeking new narratives. And that's the kind of real, that's the biggest leverage point there is in the system, changing its narrative.
0: Yeah, when people say a rising tide lifts all boats, I think not if the boat is anchored to the ground, then you drown.
1: Thank you. I'm actually writing a book. And that's literally what I say in there. A rising tide. Yes, I said this is a very often heard narrative or argument. And it's very tempting because that sounds great. That's a win-win. Who doesn't like that? But it's just not. It doesn't show up in empirical data. So after a couple of decades, you really have to re-examine that great theory. And then you discover indeed, and that's literally what I say in there it just its it drowns many boats. that's what we're seeing right now. People can't even meet their most basic needs in a such a rich country the richest in the history of the world that just de- de- defies logic, doesn't it?
0: yeah, actually, I've been learning about there's a documentary in the Hadza in Tanzania that I've watched, and I've been learning a lot about the san Bushman in southern africa and Um, Lots of indigenous cultures. We tend to think of a common thing people say these days is that the reason we get the reason the human body puts on fat so much is that our ancestors were on the verge of starving all the time and they had to keep energy that they could what they could. But the more we learn about them, they were not food insecure. They didn't live for 100,000 years, for several hundred thousand years on the verge of death all the time. They actually, in areas, where I read about a, um, their food supplies is diverse and, and plentiful, but we have food insecurity. The food insecurity, isn't, it can happen because there's not enough food, but it's more because of the distribution, and we don't distribute well, it very well.
1: Distribution is such a big deal now these days, because it's, you're right, it's not just income and wealth. It's everything. It's health outcomes. It's, it's a ge- education. It's general happiness. And even people who are obese in this country are often also still nutrient deficient because we have, it looks like food, it's not really food. So it's very interesting and it's really damaging to our health. Obesity in general is damaging, but also the stuff that's in our food, the preservatives, they're about, and that's just their food, right? So there are also a lot of toxic chemicals in pretty much any standard consumer product, this is a, a silent epidemic where we have about 80,000, more than 80,000 substances that have been linked to adverse health outcomes. 80,000, they're not tested. So we don't really know. They have been linked. But in science, is, the correlation is not causation. And it's very hard to prove that one particular chemical substance did this particular thing in your brain. It's Well, it's actually impossible to prove. But what we see in the outcomes, for example, is that we have these forever chemicals that are now detected in pr- pretty much every single American's body based on research. It's already in the breast milk. It's already in placentas. And these uh, forever chemicals are called that because they don't break down in our environment. They just accumulate. We have... And that's just this these one set of, of so-called forever chemicals. But we have, like I said, about 80,000. Sperm count since the 50s has come down 50%. That's enormous. That's a big, That's significant. And again, we don't know exactly how, but scientists think that it's because of all these chemicals in our environment.
0: Yeah, I had Robert Bellat on the podcast and really dove deep onto Forever Chemicals myself, which I urge everyone to do. And I don't know if Robert Ballat, but he was the lawyer who sued DuPont. And he's... I
1: don't. Oh, oh, yeah. Great. Yeah. Great. Yep.
0: The movie Dark Waters, what's his name? The actor who played the Hulk played him.
1: Uh-huh.
0: No, his name escapes me. The actor's name. Oh, that's great. I remember the, the lawyer who sued DuPont, but I don't remember the... The actor, the Hollywood actor.
1: That's good. I think that's a good priority, maybe.
0: I want to go back a step to the... When people say to you... Do you hear people say to you what I hear all the time, which is, oh, it's great that you do this little thing, but it really doesn't matter?
1: Oh, the picking up of stuff? Yeah, again, uh, yes and no. Yes and no. I think they are right that it will not avoid climate change, I, I think, uh, in the practical sense. But I also think there's a huge social and even psychological behavioral component to this and for that it does matter so anything and so i'm quoting gandhi here by the way I just not myself but anything you do will be insignificant but it's still very important that you do it i think that's a very true quote
0: i've been playing around with uh saying individual action doesn't matter we have to change systems it's like saying changing your baby's diaper doesn't matter it doesn't solve infant mortality
1: it's yeah, true it but it will not solve
0: infant mortality and yet you're yeah. <laughs> still going to change the baby's diaper
1: exactly that's I, and it's very important that you do that i think so i really do think in a spiritual sense there is some force that comes from that i think it's it's all in those daily in everything that happens is ultimately comes from personal actions. And those actions are spurred by a certain kind of awareness, I think.
0: Let's transition then to when we spoke last time, I asked you what the environment meant to you and asked if, you're, if you could come up with something to act on it. Do you remember what you said the environment meant and what you chose to do?
1: I remember what I chose to do. Oh, yes. What did I say about the environment? I think it was something of a connecting... And going back to our natural roots. Was that it?
0: Yeah, I remember calmness being a big part of it. Yeah, Respect, if I remember right.
1: Mm, yes, you remember better than I do.
0: And uh, it's my job. <laughs> and and uh, so what did you commit to?
1: I committed to going for a walk in a park every week, every weekend, and picking up some litter, which we did. So that was, it was very nice. Yes. No, what happened was, it's basically what I already said. It was very calming, which is not surprising. We know that nature calms people. And it's a connecting thing. And it's so interesting, because we talk about this growth, delivering happiness, that's basically the implicit message. But there's actually also research into what does really make us happy. And once we are uh, no longer resource constrained. The things that make us happy. There's been a ton of research on that, and it's five things. And one of them is giving back to your community. The second one is being physically active, so regular physical activity. Third one is they don't typically call it that, but you would recognize it as mindfulness. So just being really. God, this sounds so new age, but in the moment, really being conscious in whatever you're doing in the moment. And then, of course, community ties. We all know this. We all know that people are much happier when they have strong relationships. And oh, and also always keep on learning. So when you go for a walk in the park with your family, that is so low impact. It doesn't contribute to GDP at all. So it's not good for growth, but it's so good for happiness. And I think that's the tragedy that we're seeing today. I think a lot where I think a lot of people will recognize this. We just look at the world and you're like, but this could be better. We can totally do it. We just, we know what makes us happy. And for some reason, we, we are caught up in a system that doesn't really deliver that happiness and causes a lot of destruction. But we, while it's not necessary, but sorry, I can't help but go back to my research all the time. But so in short, yes, it's just these kind of things that because of how we are built biochemically, really, is just going for a walk in the park with your family and then feeling like you're contributing to community by picking stuff stuff up. It just improves your well-being.
0: Now you're describing how the experiments in general give these predictions. What was your actual experience of it? You also said that you've picked up litter before, but this time is, I think, the first time you're doing it since your daughter. That's right. So, can you walk us through one of the instances? What happened? How did it go?
1: My daughter is eight months, so she's just in the she's just in the carrier. So I don't really she can't speak yet, so I don't know. There wasn't a whole lot of interaction, but she watches everything we do. So she sees me pick it up and carry it with us. In that sense, but just being with my family and and doing this, it just felt good. And I know this is just the biochemical response um, of of serotonin being released. But so in that sense, I think the experience was very much in line with what research had already told me.
0: Because when I asked you last time about committing, you were like, oh, I don't know if it's really you've done it before. It wasn't that big of a deal. And because I think you you thought twice about it, or at first you said, "Oh, maybe this, but maybe not that."
1: I I have done it before. That's true. So I I can't say it was a, it was a huge difference with what it was before, but it was still as good. And I think that's actually it's funny because we were talking about these issues with chemicals and all those sort of things. But what is interesting is that there's a real difference be, between what gives us pleasure and what gives us happiness in the sense that it contributes to our well-being. And these are the kind of things, like going for a stroll in the park, that just keep being good for your well-being. They don't erode your ability to enjoy it over the longer term. And that is actually something very interesting, I think. There's this book, The Hacking of the American Mind, that because ultimately they don't draw that connection, but I draw that connection, because I think of our pursuit of growth, it's better if something that feels good to you needs to get needs to be increased in dosage every time, because that's growth. So we have an economy that has very much blurred the line between pleasure and happiness, but it's actually very different. So a lot of the things that give us pleasure you need to keep buying that, and typically the the pleasure you get from it gets less and less. so you have to uh, also typically you you do it alone more than with other people. And so going to the park, picking up litter, those are things that you can keep doing that, and it will always give you the same amount of happiness and that's what it did, and I hadn't done it since my uh, daughter was born. So I was actually quite happy with the little nudge that you gave me to get back into that habit.
0: So I can take a little credit for bringing something back into your life and uh, your family? Yes, you can. All right. Let's stop the podcast right there. On a, well, I wanna, <laughs> Also, I'm curious how did it affect, you talked about your relationship with your daughter. Did any other relationships get affected? Did people in the neighborhood see you doing it? Or did you share it with other family members or anything like that?
1: No, I don't think. It was quite cold and uh, snowy sometimes. I don't think we actually ran into people. Not while picking up the litter specifically. We sometimes run into people in the neighborhood, but no, I can't say that.
0: And do you think you'll keep doing it? Yes. I think I knew the answer to that one. (laughs) (laughs) And do you think it'll grow? Do you think it'll... I've been picking up litter for a long time myself, and... Sadly, I I can't help but pick up more, especially since the pandemic, because there's so much more litter. Like, how do you think it'll evolve? Have you thought about that?
1: I haven't, and I'm not sure. I I don't. No, I haven't. But I think if I'm looking at okay, what I'm going to do for the future with these kind of things, I can see when Ella is older, do much more with that get into the community, do little cleanups. I think that's really good for her development as well. But uh, for the near term, to be honest with you, um, uh, finalizing my book. So that's something that so I spend a lot of time with just behind my desk. And we, I am working in a, a work stream with the Club of Rome on giving a 50-year update to the limits to growth. Because we had this message in the 70s, and if we had heeded that, We really had an opportunity to have a relatively smooth transition into a stable world in the 70s, and that is now gone. So we can, my research showed that we can still make that transition, but we need to be super fast with it. The biggest challenge really is time at this point. And so, again, if you want to have, if time is that much of an issue, the rest we have, right? Uh, We have people fed up with the current system and we have the technology, too. We also have the money. There's no doubt about that. So
0: We also have yes. a lot of people who are not fed up with the current system who like the current system.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. So it's true that we're divided enough. But even people who, for example, let's say the insurrectionist crowd kind of thing, they disagree probably with me on a lot of who's, who's to blame and those kind of things but they are clearly fed up with the current system i think not everybody is great in systems thinking and so when you are not you will still feel that the system is not working but if you don't have a lot of knowledge or intuition about systems you tend to focus on the most visible events so i think that's why people are so up in arms about uh, vaccines. The COVID pa- pandemic is, of course, is a very visible event. And so you focus on that, your sense that something is wrong in the system. So I'm not, we're, again, on the details, we, ver- we don't align much, but this idea that the current system is not working for most, I think is quite uh, ubiquitous.
0: I see people agreeing that there are problems with the system. I see a lot of people, though, who believe various things. One of the big ones would be that growth will solve this problem or that fossil fuels, I think a lot of people see fossil fuels as having lifted, as well as growth, have lifted, this is them, not me, have lifted more people out out of poverty and have allocated resources, the markets allocate resources to the creative and innovative people. And what we need is for the creative and innovative people to come up with more technologies And I think they have in their hearts a Star Trek, a vision of a future like Star Trek where energy, we've had all this dirty energy. All we have to do is take away the dirt and then we'll have clean energy.
1: Yeah, we could have started doing that in the 70s. Solar technique really has been around for a long time, but wind too. I'm from the Netherlands, like we had wind power a long time ago already. I completely agree that the technology is there. We have no argument there. But you can't deny that we haven't been doing that much with it, certainly not as much as we could have, and certainly not as much as we should have. So uh, the question there is, why hasn't that happened? And that's because technology is a tool. It is not a saver. To some extent, there are people, technologists, I call them, who are just elevating technology to into some kind of... Uh, leader of a religion almost like it's almost like technology will save us technology is just a tool and it's going to be deployed mostly towards what the overarching goal of the system is so if the system's goal is growth technology will spur that so if we're already locked into fossil fuels technology will mostly go towards digging deeper and more dispersed which is of course what has mostly happened so yes we have We have technology, but the deployment of it is very much, and of course, innovation itself is very much coming from the human beings. And that's where uh, the solution lies. We consciously have to commit to uh, a more sustainable world. And then again, the tool of technology will be indispensable, but we have to direct it.
0: I can't tell you how good it feels to have someone say that because that's I say things like that, and it seems so clear from a system's perspective. And I don't think many people get it, but it's, yeah, it, one of the ways I put it is that if we, and maybe I said this last time, if you may, if you you can tell the goals of a system by its output, and our system pollutes. If you make a system, a polluting system more efficient, say with technology, you will pollute more efficiently. Even if you emit less pollution in the local spot, if the goal is pollution, it, well, if it's growth, externals, and costs, extraction, you're going to get pollution. And if you increase that, it, it doesn't matter if you would like it to pollute less overall. What's going to happen is you're going to pollute more efficiently. And we pollute extremely efficiently now. We, we produce more pollution with less effort than ever.
1: That's exactly right. And of course, the in my research, when I compared different scenarios, right, to empirical data, what I found was that two of the most uh, closely aligning scenarios, one of them was the one where collapse happens as a result from pollution. And that just seems very obvious now. That's why I mentioned all the toxic chemicals in our environment earlier. An obvious one is also the carbon pollution from fossil fuels. There's so much pollution going on right now, and a lot of it is so unregulated. Actually, in my research, the hardest for me was actually to find a data proxy for the pollution variable, because we don't track it. There is no global repository. There's no database about all these different kind of things that we put in our environment. We now have carbon, which is what I use. We have finally one paper paper, made an estimate of the amount of plastic that we have in our world, which is interesting. We know this. We know that there's the size of an island floating in the ocean of plastic. There are dead zones in the ocean because of this plastic, but it doesn't show up on Google Maps. Nobody really knows how much it is because we don't measure it. I find that very interesting. Why is that not showing on Google Maps? When I, when we do this in general. like I drive through California. Or I used to when I lived there, and there was this blue line on the map, but there's no river there. It's all hidden from our view. What we are doing with the world, and I think you can tell a lot from a society by what they choose to measure. Like GDP, we have all kinds of data on profit, very right to two in decimal points, and what they do not choose to measure, like pollution.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking of. Stuff that's off in the ocean, it's not regular. It's like the things that we... There are a couple of things that are really hard to solve, like tragedy of the commons, that we can't divide up the ocean. In principle, you can divide up land and people will... If in the traditional tragedy of the commons, you could divide up a commons and have each farmer gets to use this their 150th of the thing for their sheep, and then they're not that removes the incentive to overgraze but yeah the air that we breathe in the oceans cannot
1: can i just interrupt there this is a very common mistake it's not really i don't i so i'm not accusing you of anything i think it's been uh, uh, that argument has been used way too often to justify privatization
0: oh yeah i don't want to are, say that that what are uh... our
1: common goods and it's not, we have the Nobel Prize winner Eleanor Ostrom already showed that we are totally, we have a long history as humanity of governing the commons quite sustainably. We can totally do it. So some things work, some things don't. But yeah, it is possible with better governance structures.
0: Yeah, I don't want to say that privatization, it can work. It's not the only thing that works. And it's not often not the best thing. Central Park is not. You know, for me in Manhattan is one example where it's a commons and it's regulated. We could build in it. Think of the profits to be made if we built a high rise in yeah, the middle of right. it. It would be like the most valuable property in the world. Also, I had on the podcast. Oh darn, what's his name? James Rebanks, who is a sheep a shepherd in the Lake District in England, and he talks about how traditionally they had all sorts of ways of having farmers graze their flocks without, they had rules that they collectively set up. It created community and they didn't have to privatize everything. They take turns. They all had, and community norms evolved from it of how to treat your neighbors and things like that.
1: Exactly. And we are social animals. We are wired for connection. So it has literally been ingrained in our dna over the years this governing of the commons is one of the reasons that we have evolved as so much of a social animal because we're in any other way we're not that impressive as an animal except for of course we all know this for a large brain but why is it so large what's the benefit of that and it's mostly to be able to collaborate like we do that's our strength and there's a recent book that is called survival of, uh, the, I think, the kindest or the friendliest. And you have to excuse me. One of the two, but what it comes down to is that our altruistic nature is not, is actually one of the key things that makes us so successful. Our, we are defined by our need for connection and actually our, our friendliness. And I think if you talk about... Narrative of the system. What's the narrative that we have of ourselves? I think we should re examine that as well because we have been told that we are consumers and producers. That's it. And also uh, in neoclassical economics, that we are cal- ever calculating, never satisfied uh, p- persons. And I just don't think it describes us very well.
0: <laughs> have you so that's ta- another
1: thing. Yeah,
0: sorry. Have you, you talked about the prevailing narrative that I think I can safely say you don't buy into it anymore. And do you have a new narrative for how you imagine we could live as individuals, as a society, as a species?
1: I do, although it's certainly not, I think it's certainly something that we together should come up with. But I think the direction I would aim for is to put it, and I will get into more details because this is very generic, but first and foremost, my vision for the world would be where humanity asks not instead forevermore for better. What we're doing is just to put it in economic terms, suboptimal, right? We have all these resources. We have this abundant life-giving earth, and what we're doing with it is just—it's uh, not working in any way. It's not even working for growth. We are eroding our long-term growth potential. But that's the least of it, because growth is a dumb ultimate goal anyway. I'm not anti-growth, by the way. I work, you mentioned I work at KPMG. I actually, since this month, last Tuesday, I work at Snyder Electric, which works in energy solutions. Listen, if you work in the renewable energy sector, there's a good chance you're going to work at a company that has consistent growth for the next decade. There's nothing particularly wrong with that. But what I'm saying is to have that as our ultimate goal is just terribly unambitious. So really, what our goal would be as a company is to, to bring about the renewable energy transformation. And that's, I think, in general, what we as humanity want to do is we want to meet human needs within planetary boundaries. That would be a way better goal, wouldn't it? And if in some regions of the world, we'll probably need also some economic growth for that. But I, again, but the ultimate goal would be to meet people's needs. And that has always been the narrative, but you need growth to alleviate poverty that you mentioned that earlier. Yeah. Do we go like, why don't we just make that directly our goal? Why do we have to go through this side goal of growth? There's no good reason, except that growth allows the ultra wealthy to not share. That's what ultimately what growth does, because as long as the, the pie is growing, they can hold on to what they have, and then just give a sliver of the growth. So I think that's a very interesting. I think that people should really ask themselves. I'm not telling you to believe me, but ask yourself, who benefits from this story? That always helps. This story that we need growth for uh, meeting more of people's needs, who benefits from that story?
0: In my way of looking at that is that in physics, we have this wonderful principle that, You can have a theory that can be as beautiful as you, if you run an experiment and nature behaves differently, you throw out the theory, it's wrong. You might like it, but nature doesn't negotiate. Nature does what it is. But in economics, it seems that if you have a theory and you like it and nature doesn't coincide with it, they say nature's wrong and they stick with the theory. Yeah. And I propose dropping that habit.
1: Yep, uh, I agree. But the reason that it's easier to do that, it's because economics is a social science. It is not a beta science. It has... Neoclassical economics, they have all these formulas and it almost, it, it's to wow you, I think, into almost thinking like they are an exact science. But they're not. They, those formulas only hold because they have a, because they have these, very unrealistic ideas of how humans behave. That that's what I said earlier. That this rational man, this homo economicus, that's the core of a, a neoclassical economics. Their formulas don't work without that assumption. And so that's exactly what you said. If you talk about, well, we're going to force nature to behave that way. So we are part of nature too. So they made a definition of human beings. It really doesn't describe us very well. But if we would act like that, yes, then the formulas would be correct. But, <laughs> yes. but we keep acting, I think, still a little bit as if that's what we do. And it's we are consumers and producers sometimes, but we have so many more roles. And they're just not in there. And so is it really that surprising that the economic system isn't functioning so well all the
0: time? How do you see society looking? Say we transition to sustainable, if, if that's not too glib a way of putting it. Say ten years from now we've transitioned. What what does life look like for the average person, or for business, for government?
1: Yeah. So the upcoming ten years indeed will be absolutely crucial. They, they're they're pivotal. They're of immense historical relevance. I I really believe that. If I think our actions of the upcoming decades. Will determine where humanity stands at the end of the century. It is really that important, and I also do believe that if we don't make these necessary changes, that we will be facing a much harsher world, and in the aftermath of a global ecosystem collapse.
0: That doesn't mean that make it. And yes, how do people Um, live? Because they're not the stock market is going to look different, and what people do day to day. Presumably they're not gonna have plastic bags handed them at the store.
1: Right. Right. So I can only speak in, in general terms because there's so many things. But if you talk to about like the general vision, like I said, I think we should I think we will adopt a narrative where human beings see themselves as playing a unique role in the web of life. So, there's no hierarchy where we are at the top, but we are we do play a very unique role in in the web of life, like any species. Bees play an enormously unique role. everybody does that, but we have a unique role too, as I would say, if you like the term as the shepherds. We do have an ability to understand complexity more than other animals, and so we could use that to uh, be the stewards of nature and therefore be also a regenerative force. So far, we've been clearly, our role has been degenerative, but we can do the opposite. We can be, we can restore and regenerate. And I think that's the kind of things that I would like to see. So our economic systems then, like I said, would be have the goal of meeting human needs within planetary boundaries And then our practices would be one of the uh, regenerative forms. So for like anything in nature, for example, Schneider Electric works a lot in buildings. There is, why would we have these buildings that an often heard heard target is uh, zero net carbon? I don't think that's ambitious enough in my uh, vision we would have buildings that are just like the rest of nature, which is they give back more than they take. Why would you stop at zero? I don't think that's natural. I think our ultimate drive is to be, I don't know about you, but if you talk about our ultimate goal, I think we're very motivated once our basic needs are met, of course, we're motivated by leaving the world a little bit better than we found it. Why are you doing this podcast? Because you would like to contribute to people's awareness and understanding, etc. So we all have this drive, I think. Once we're once we're not hungry anymore, etc., to leave the world better than we found it. And I think that's a much better goal. It's much more engaging. It can bring us together much better than an empty pursuit of growth. So yeah, again, our practices would be like that too. So instead of, so maybe no plastic. That that makes sense. Um, Why wouldn't we just make packaging of things that are biodegradable, but not just, again, net zero, but have nutrition for the soil we throw them at? I'm just saying it could be anything, but I think that's the kind of practices I would want to see. Roofs of buildings that give off oxygen instead of, again, just not costing any carbon, That's those kind of things.
0: If I read you right, and tell me if I'm reading, is that you're fo- you're focusing as a systems thinker would on on if we set up, if these are the goals and the visions that we have, then the, the details will depend on, I don't know, the entrepreneurs and how the legislation gets played out. But if we're driving, if it's regenerative, not just merely net zero, but positive or negative, whichever, <laughs> regenerative, then things will play out and the details aren't you're looking at the systems level, at, the, at what drives the system. Is, is that right?
1: Yes. And to tie it back to, uh, thank you for saying it. that's exactly what it is. And to tie it back to what we said earlier about technology, once we have reframed our goals, of course, our human innovation is going to be, it's going to be off the charts. So I see a distinct role for technology here. But like I said, we already have that this iot the internet of things blockchain solar energy of course of course they're going to be an absolutely uh, critical part of the solution but and much more than i can even come up with right now but first we have to aim that innovative power at something different
0: if we do the innovation without the change in goals and values we we get more of the same we accelerate the, what we have if we change first and then and then apply the innovation, technology, and creativity, then we get more of what we want. Now, you've said, you've mentioned a book a couple of times, and I've bit my tongue to ask about it, because what I really want to ask about the book is, will you come back again, either just before or just after the book comes out, to share specifically about the book? I would love to. Good. I was gambling. I th- I thought you might say that. <laughs> <laughs> and I would love to hear more about the book, the research, working with the Club of Rome, what it's like to get into the details of doing the research of the numbers in, in limits to growth and your research. It, exactly. it was painful not to ask about it now, except that I anticipated it would come out. And I think you said it was going to come out this summer.
1: That's correct. So the Club of Rome report, we will be presenting at the Stockholm 50 plus uh, UN meeting which is June 3rd, and my book will come out shortly after. So we could maybe even after the meeting, we could do that, and I can tell you how it went.
0: Oh, man, I'm thinking, I want to do it in May, and I'll, I'll embargo it if you want. <laughs>
1: <'Cause>,
0: <laughs> I, I mean, I want to do- Yep,
1: Yeah, we can do that too.
0: Ah, yes. Okay, great. And then I'm also curious about Schneider Electric, because when you work in sustainability, then that name comes up a lot. And I'd also love to hear if I want to see if when we, when we talked about the commitment to pick up litter, one of the things that made it click last time, if I remember right as something to do was that you're doing it, not just if I think that the added element of having the calmness, the respect in mind while doing it augmented the experience. And if that's the case, I'd love to, you know, I envision one of the reasons I'm in this is to reach the public. Another reason I'm in this is to bring to corporations, especially to senior leadership, that for them to go through experiences like this and share it with the company, I think, accelerates and gets people on board. Schneider, I would imagine most people are on board, but even then, maybe not as directly, personally, bending down and picking up litter with their bare hands themselves. And that being something that brings joy, something that connects more with family, that is not dirty and something we have to do, but something we get to do. Or KPMG. Mm -hmm. Is this something that you being in these corporate environments, would this be valuable to corporations, especially senior leadership?
1: It would. I see the companies that I worked for or worked with. I see a lot of them do this. They have these special days and yes I agree that it's valuable and you can see that it's really driving a lot of engagement but that's also why companies do it because they know it makes people feel good and I will say i um, sorry to be critical here but I will say if it's just a national pickup trash day I always urge companies to do more I think it's a necessary part to do. I also I think because otherwise you're just pre- uh, preaching and not doing what you preach. I don't think that's helpful. But I also don't think it's just good enough to have a pick up trash day like you have in some companies and so interrupt they,
0: But I, I want to distinguish that I'm, I'm not saying pick up trash. I'm saying okay. to focus on the authentic intrinsic motivation inside a person the, prior yes. to the action is the emotional Drawing out and sharing, in my case, my sledding hill was one of the examples. And if we simply comply with a trend or even a noble, well-intentioned task, but we do it out of compliance, but not out of intrinsic, authentic, personal experience-based motivation, that's what I want to draw out. That's what I don't see people doing. That's the distinction.
1: Got it. I completely agree with that. Yes, and that's really where it all comes from, that connection. Yeah.
0: So I'd love to bring this more to corporations. I, to, I've so many guests that I've had say before they come up with the thing that they do, they think well, what I do does matter and things like that. And I have this one guy. He's this big hedge fund guy. He's moved on from hedge funds now, and he's look. I'm already doing all these things. I can't do anything. I don't have time. I'm doing all the things I already can. And this just doesn't make the cut. And I say, let's just go through it anyway. And we go through it and eventually comes up with something that takes no time, takes no energy. In fact, he already picks up litter when he walks the dog. And when he talked about what things meant to him and I said, let's, okay, we'll stick. Anyway, walk through the process and he decided, okay, when he goes out all the time now, he's going to bring a bag with him in order to pick up litter all the time, anytime he goes out. So he might bring the bag with him and have nothing to do, but he might bring the bag out with him and find litter and pick it up even when he's not walking the dog. So I say to him afterward, after he comes up with this, I say, wait, listen. He says, does this fit with your criteria? I was like, yeah, it does. I say, does not fit with your criteria? Is this going to blow your budget? Because it costs nothing. Is this going to take time away from other things? Because it doesn't take any extra time. And he's like, yeah. You could see in his eyes, he was like, you got me. This really is something I'm going to enjoy. It's not going to take any resources. It's going to give me energy, not take energy. And he threw up every piece of resistance that anyone's ever come up with of all the things, all the reasons why he couldn't do it. And in the end, he's just, oh, I'm happy to do this.
1: I think this is actually a great illustration, a a very personal anecdotal illustration of what I just said about how we view ourselves. So, this guy is a hedge, former hedge fund manager, so very steeped in the Homo economicus thinking, right? So, it's true that in, if we were a Homo economicus, we wouldn't enjoy picking up trash. And it wouldn't give us, because it's it just exerting effort and you don't get any money or anything from it. That's maybe to some extent why he thought you couldn't afford it, so to say. And that's exa- precisely my point. We aren't like that. We get joy from doing those kind of things, and it doesn't actually take away energy. It technically costs energy because you have to bend and exert muscle strength. But we get back so much more energy from that. And that's, yeah, like I said, it's because we are much more than a Homo economicus. And I would argue, more importantly, we are much better.
0: That might be a nice note to end on. To that we're not just what they think, but we're much better. Is that a good place to end? Or is there anything to close with before we talk again? I
1: think it's a very good way to end, because that's literally how I end my book. <laughs> so I, I agree that it's a good closure. I, at the end of my book, And I it's a very strong quantitative data analysis and everything. But it also, that's how I end. If there's anything you remember, is there one thing you take away from this book? It's you are met much more than what you've been told. Not ever more, just
0: better. <laughs> well, until next time then, Gaia Harrington, thank you very much. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.